We're talking about needing a rest. The title I was given was Need a Rest. I will need a rest after all this. We'll get there. And we've all said it at different times. I need a rest. Maybe you've been out in the garden working hard and you just think, oh, I need a rest. Time for a cup of coffee and a, a rest. Maybe you've been in the workshop. Maybe you've been in the office and you just want to get out of it all, get a wee break from it all. We're all some under pressure and strains and we get tired and we get niggled and we just say, I need to get away from it all. Get a rest. Have a good rest. And in many ways, a good balance of work and rest contribute to a more profitable work rate. When God had completed the work of creation, we're told that he rested on the seventh day. God established the importance of rest, a day to step back from and away from work and labor, a day to stop serving ourselves and turn our hearts to serving God in worship, a day to rest the body and the mind and refresh the soul. By and large, a lot of that has been set aside today. For many people, Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection that we look upon as the day of worship and the Lord's day, many people won't have been to worship God today. Many will have gone out to do other things today, to enjoy themselves, do their own thing. But the principle of a Sabbath, as a day of rest is valuable. The Sabbath is about rest. It doesn't say God rested on the Sabbath, but God rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord, the rest day. And that's important for us, to have a day to rest our bodies and to rest our minds. And the fourth commandment for me remains viable and profitable. And here the writer to the Hebrews speaks of the promised rest and begins really in the beginning there of chapter 3 or in 3 verse 7 where the emphasis is upon how the Israelites who came out of Egypt failed to enter the promised land of Canaan. I wasn't able to be present. I'm sure Brian has handled that part well with you a few weeks back. And it continues now into chapter 4, urging upon the readers then and now to make every effort to enter that rest, as it says there in verse 11. We go back to the beginning of, of chapter 3, and this passage that I looked at in 1 Hochul, we say 1 always going back to Brashean, in 1 Hochul a few weeks ago, where it says Moses or Jesus is greater than Moses. But Moses is not forsaken nor forgotten. He's not to be set aside. Moses was a faithful servant of God who entered into the rest in a manner of speaking. But Israel was faithless. They did not enter. And the writer of Hebrews addressing Jewish Christians of the many and the various ways by which God had addressed his people 
naturally draws upon the sad historical event of the wilderness wanderings as a parable and a type of Christian pilgrimage with its attendant privileges or pearls. And he's saying to the church then and to us now, we're just like the children of Israel that God brought up out of Egypt and brought across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. We're wanderers, but there is a promised rest. And we need to notice, too, as we think about this, the problem of setting out in fervor, but failure to remain faithful that leads to disappointment. You go back to those children of Israel, and on that night when, when the angel of death passes over Egypt, and Pharaoh sends out the word to let the people go. And Moses has said to them, be ready to go. And they go. Oh, do they go. They are just so glad to be going. You imagine the sense of joy in the hearts of those people. We're leaving the slavery behind. We're getting our freedom. We're going home to our land. There's a decisive start there, isn't there? There's an early gush of zeal and vigor. But that alone is not enough to complete the course and to reach the promised land of rest. We'll refer to that again later. But right now, I just want you to have your Bible open there at Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> and we're just going to walk through the verses, first of all. The verses that we've read, I just want to summarize these in four sections, verses one, to six, verses 1 and 2, here we see the promise of entering rest that was rooted in Israel's journey from slavery in, uh, to rest in Canaan, from Egypt to Canaan. And the message of God was delivered by Moses to the people in Egypt, delivered to the people at Sinai, and it offered rest and prosperity in a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the land that they were longing to return to. But many failed to believe the message, and so they died in the wilderness. Good news came to them, but they, they did not benefit because they were not united by faith with those who listened promise is there. And we see then in verses 3 to 5 the principle of rest that dates back into creation where the writer talks about God resting on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. It refers there to creation completed. It speaks of those who have believed. That is, who have believed the message from God and the work of Christ that they also enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. And those who believe are resting in God, resting with God. But the disobedient do not have rest. Then verses 6 through to 10, we notice that the door is open here to the pathway of rest, to enter the rest of God. Today, today, 
is a, a key word. Today, David said in Psalm 95, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's present tense. It is those who hear the word of God today need to believe and embrace the promises of God. And although Joshua, with God's help, led Israel into the promised land, that does not define God's rest. There is another rest, a greater Sabbath rest for the people of God that remains for all who believe. And all the saints of every age have entered God's rest. We could go through the Bible mentioning those who have entered God's rest. Down through history, those who have entered God's rest. And some have entered God's rest today. And some will enter this week, or next week, or next year. This is the pathway to rest. It is in believing in the word of God. But the end that comes in verses 11 and 13 to speak about the importance of striving to enter that rest, the pursuit of rest. Strive to enter. Make every effort to walk uprightly. We are saved by grace. But we're not placed on an elevator. There's an old saying which goes, let go and let God. I personally don't like it. It's not about let go and let God. It's about following and walking and climbing. We're not on an elevator where you stand and you're carried along or upwards. But we're on a, a ladder or a mountain path where we take each step carefully, cautiously. And by the word of God, the message is declared. And it is powerful like a sword that is penetrating into the, the innermost part of man, exposing and dividing souls. Moses wielded the sword in Egypt as he speaks to Pharaoh, as he speaks to the children of Israel. He wielded that sword at Sinai as he brings to the people the word of God and indeed the judgment of God. The prophets wielded this sword down through the generations as they call upon the people to repent from their sinful ways and follow God's way. And Jesus himself is the word and the sword. And his messages were powerful messages, penetrating and divisive. Many who heard him despised his words and hated him. The disciples wielded the sword. And every Christian wields this sword in every sermon spoken and in every message of the gospel that is shared. And so with the sobering lesson of the wilderness generation still echoing there in the background, the writer states with so much assurance the promise of entering his rest still stands. In other words, what God offered Israel in the past is still available to the readers of Hebrews in their day and to us today. The critical lesson is that the ultimate rest promised by God is not found in a plot of land in the Middle East, 
but in having faith in God. The land of Canaan, important though it is for the history of God's people, is not, was not God's highest goal for his people. Rather that Israel then and now would by faith join him in heaven's eternal rest. And while the faithful Joshua led Israel across the swollen waters of Jordan in the conquest of Canaan, he did not lead them to the intended ultimate goal of God. If Canaan fulfilled the promise, then David's warning in Psalm 95 that is quoted several times in these chapters would be pointless. Rather, there is a greater Joshua who brings about a greater conquest and salvation. So let's look thirdly at what is God's rest. What is God's rest? Look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. I, I like that there. He has somewhere spoken. You know what it's like when you're trying to find a wee verse of scripture and you can't just think where it is and, and you feel a bit bad because people think you should know every verse in the Bible. And then you read the book of Hebrews here and the writer to the Hebrews is saying, he has somewhere spoken. Well, that, that's good for me. Somewhere spoken. I sort of feel like saying, does he not know Genesis 1 and 2, mind you, but that's, not, that's another thing. Somewhere spoken of the seventh day. God rested. What is God's rest? Well, it's about creation finished. God rested. When he had made the earth and everything in it, when he had put the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and the animals on the hills, when he created man in his own image, when he looked at all that he created and he said, it is very good, it is very good, and he rested. But God is not forever inactive, but God is working. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. And God is working to make it possible for mankind created in his image to enjoy his perfect creation. Adam enjoyed the most perfect setting that ever there was in the world. Adam was made perfect. He was set into a perfect garden of Eden. I don't know how vast it was, but he had a perfect setting. And he could enjoy that perfect creation. The animals didn't fight. There was calmness. There was pleasantness. But by his one foolish act of disobedience in the garden, he spoiled the perfect work of God and therefore endured the punishment, cast out from the garden, made to work the ground by the sweat of his brow. But salvation is promised, and salvation is pending. God is working, and Christ is working to restore what mankind has spoiled. And God's love for his creation sent his Son into the world to procure salvation for many people. One day this too will be complete, with Satan defeated and Eden restored. God's rest is his perfection. Imagine for a moment 
you're invited by His Royal Highness King Charles to enjoy his rest. You fly across to Heathrow and you're picked up with the Royal Limo at Heathrow and you're whisked off to the splendid surrounds of Windsor Castle where you are shown around its, its glorious buildings and its, its beautiful grounds, where you dine in a, a grand dining hall with, with all of the royal family set out at that long table and the guests that are brought in for the occasion. And then the king drives you in his 1968 Aston Martin all the way up to Balmoral Castle where you relax at the log fire and you listen to the skirl of the pipes playing Highland Cathedral, no doubt. And you're dressed and dressed in a royal tartan kilt. I'm not sure I want to see too many of you dressed in any kind of kilt, but dressed in this royal tartan kilt. You head out to explore the rivers filled with trout and the hills alive with birds and deer. You are sharing what the king calls my rest. This is where he wants to be, to get away from it all. This is the place that her late majesty the queen loved to go to. And I think that King Charles will love it too. My rest. How much greater should be the excitement of our hearts in anticipation of entering and sharing God's rest. And here's something else that I've just thought. God has already sent his prince to gather us there. Christ has come to bring us in this heavenly limo into the heavenly presence. What a prospect to be in God's rest. Salvation complete. We leave this world behind with all of its snares, temptations, and dangers. We enter the perfect rest of heaven above. Well, how then are we to enter God's rest? And verse 11 says to us that we are to strive, strive to enter that rest. So I'm going to suggest in closing three vital steps to take on the pathway to rest. The pathway to rest. The first one is this. We need to listen. We need to listen. In 3.7 and 3.15 and at verse 4.7 we have these words. Today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. We need to listen. Back in verse 2, it talks about good news came to us just as to them. There was good news for Israel back in Egypt. The good news of the Passover that God's angel has passed over and has entered into every Egyptian home, but he has passed over the Israelites' home. And while there is sorrow in every Egyptian's home, redemption is bought, purchased and the people are free to go, and they leave Egypt in rejoicing, and they cross the Red Sea, and they come into the Sinai, into Sinai wilderness. But in their failure to listen, 
and keep going on with God, they find no rest. They did not benefit with those who listened. So many came up out of Egypt. Moses Moses didn't get to cross into the land of Canaan because of what happened at Meribah and Massah. But Joshua and Caleb did. Of the adults that left Egypt, only two entered the promised land. Good news then. Good news from God through the prophets who proclaimed God's message down through the ages. When the people turned away from God, turned to follow other gods, the prophet would come, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the others, urging the people to turn from their false ways and be faithful to God and worship God and him alone. You have Elijah on that mountain before Ahab, crying out to God to send the fire, and the fire comes, and the people say, the Lord, he is God. But there's no revival in Israel. Turned back to their old ways. Failure to listen means no rest. There's good news for today. Christ has come. Chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Christ has come. He is our Passover lamb. Redemption secured at great cost to God, who did not withhold his Son, his only Son, whom he loved, but gave him up as a sacrifice for our sins. Why? Because of his love. And so today means now. Now. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's the day of salvation. We need to listen. We need to believe. Hearing a message is is not enough. We need to accept it. We need to respond to it. We need to believe in it. Unbelieving hearts fall away. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. It says there, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Failure to believe the word of God, the message concerning Jesus Christ, will mean no rest. Despite what happened in Egypt that first Passover night, and what happened at the Red Sea, as they went through that sea on dry land, And as they looked around and saw the waves crash in and cover over the Egyptian pursuing army, yet Israel failed to believe that God would preserve them and God would deliver them. They have no confidence in God. And faced with every little difficulty, they come to Moses with their complaining and their gurning. We need to believe. We need to trust in our great God. We need to believe what God has said in his word to us, for us. We need to believe what Christ has done through his death on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension into glory. Those are recurring themes in Hebrews that you'll be presented with in coming weeks. We need to believe. Thirdly, we need to obey. We need to obey the word that we hear. Hear the word, believe the word, 
act upon the word. Because the word of God powerfully penetrates heart and mind. It exposes our sins. It examines our thoughts. It shows us our perilous destiny before a holy God. It unveils the way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, an advocate with God. The Word of God calls us to repentance and faith. It also calls us to submission and obedience. As Paul writes to Titus, knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. And we can only know the truth as we read, as we listen, as we believe the Word of God. Then we must obey the living Word of God. Not just some of it. Not just those passages that you have, you're absolutely happy with, you have no problem with, no issue with. But all of it. All of it. See, the Word of God will, will control our behavior. The Word of God will direct our thoughts. The Word of God, says the psalmist, will direct our footsteps, will keep our hearts pure, will teach us wisdom, will enable wise decisions, right choices, because our hearts are filled with the Word of God. The Shorter Catechism says, I'll just move on, it's on the screen, the Shorter Catechism says that the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. We go to the Scriptures to know God. We go to the Scriptures to discover so much about who God is and what God has done. But there in those same Scriptures, in those same Scriptures, God is saying to you, and God is saying to me, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live your life, as a father, as a son, as a husband, as a wife, as a servant, as a boss. God is telling us how we're to work and how we're to serve in the world and in the church. It's all in the Scripture. And the Scripture is showing us God's way. And we need to hear, we need to listen. And we need to obey. We need to believe. And we need to obey. Israel did not obey. Israel turned to their own affections and the attractions, the attractiveness of building a golden calf in the wilderness that they could, they could see and they could come and bow down in front of it. We need to learn from Israel's failure, Israel's going after false gods when they came into the land of Canaan. Oh, that we could have gods like our neighbors. Oh, that we could have a king like our neighbors. God says, listen. God says, believe. God says, obey. Strive. Strive to enter in. Strive suggests it's not easy. You're working at it. Sometimes struggling at it. 
There'll be tough times, and there'll be good times, and there'll be bad times. But strive, strive with all of your heart and mind and soul. Paul says, talks about running the race and finishing the course. And he talks about striving to the end. Strive to enter that rest. The writer John, it is in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. May you walk with faith and obedience on this pathway of righteousness that you may enter into and enjoy eternal rest. Yeah, we have rest right now with God because we rest in his presence, in his arms, in his strength, but ultimately we will rest in heaven above. That you may enjoy that eternal rest with God. You need a rest. You need God's rest. Don't miss out. Strive to enter in. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father in heaven, we recognize that like Adam and all that have descended from Adam, we are frail and fickle and apt to stray. Like the children of Israel, who we can so easily condemn, we too have gone astray. And we have turned to our own ways, followed our own affections, set up our own attractions. Father, forgive us. Lord, if we, if we love you, help us to listen to all that you say to us. Help us to believe what you have given to us in your word, what Christ has done for us at the cross. Help us to obey, to obey your word, and with the psalmist to say your word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. So may we strive with every sinew of our bodies to enter into your eternal rest. Thank you, Lord. Amen.